Detroit really is a fascinating city. It's home to creative pioneers and geniuses, Aretha Franklin, Madonna, and of course Eminem all call Motown home. You've read case studies about how Steve Ballmer, William Boeing, and Henry Ford all changed business as we know it, and you guessed it, they're from Detroit too. Yalitza Jean Charles and her company, Healthy Roots Dolls, also call the Motor City home as well, and she's today's guest on Rolled Up. CEO of a really incredible children's product company, creating diversity and representation for children, graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design, which I think a lot of people don't know. I'm actually a technically trained artist. It's been a long time since someone has asked me to draw a picture of them, but I am happy with the quality of the education I received and the creativity and the way that I was challenged because it informs the work I do every day now. What started as a school project has turned into a full business, winning numerous awards along the way, and going beyond a direct consumer website, now Healthy Roots Dolls is available in Target. In this episode of Rolled Up, Elites and I talk about how the accessibility of information, in particular the rise of how content is changing the world, the problems we wish we had and challenges we do have, and how the culture of Detroit influences her business, Healthy Roots Dolls. I really enjoyed this episode of Rolled Up and hope you will too. Yulitsa Jean Charles is the founder and CEO of Healthy Roots Dolls. And if you haven't checked out the website, they don't look like your average Barbie doll because most kids don't look like an average Barbie doll. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is some of the challenges and obstacles Yulitsa had to overcome during her journey which has accelerated fast from being a very successful business owner that can give the odd flex to people who give her a little bit of a hard time to becoming a Forbes 30 under 30. So Yulitsa, thank you so much for making the time to join me in a very busy time of year and just very crazy part of life. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rolled Up podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So did I miss anything in in that intro that you're you're just hoping people know about you? I saw your TED talk as well earlier, which was just fascinating to watch. I'll post a link to it in the description. I think you covered it. Uh, CEO of a really incredible children's product company, creating diversity and representation for children, graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design, which I think a lot of people don't know. I'm actually a technically trained artist. Um, it's been a long time since someone has asked me to draw a picture of them, but I do not miss it. But I am happy with the quality of the education I received and the creativity um, and the way that I was challenged because it informs the work I do every day now. My first question that I always like to ask people is, how do you identify? Ooh. Like, would you call yourself an artist, uh, a founder, an inventor? How do you identify beyond being a founder? I think that's an interesting question because I'm not in love with having to identify myself as anything, particularly because of the fact that my company has been getting so much spotlight. And like when we would go outside to events, remember that events, uh, vaguely, <laughs> you know, young women would run up and say, oh, my God, I love the work that you're doing. And I'm just standing there like I just, you know, I'm just a person like you. I just happen to do something that I really love. Other people really love it. That's that. So like in terms of identifying, I am just an individual who's incredibly passionate about making a difference and trying to do as much meaningful work in the time that I have. I love that. And I think that your mission is just so important. And I don't want to butcher or put words in, in your mouth, but it's just, it's so important for children to have toys that 
look like them, but also toys that look like their friends. So that yes. there's not this idolization of this is the only way to look or the only way to do things. So why don't you give me a little bit of sort of the mission of Healthy Roots Dolls and uh, for someone who might not be familiar with the story, how you got started in creating dolls with really natural uh, hair and skin tones. Yeah. So Healthy Roots Dolls is a multicultural children's product company. Our first line of products focuses on teaching girls to love their curls. And how we do that is by designing dolls, our first one, Zoe, with hair that is uniquely designed to be washed and styled just like real hair. And so I did that because I never really had a doll that looked like me but I also struggled to learn how to take care of my hair and love my hair until I was about 20 years old uh, and it wasn't until I watched someone actually cut off all their hair and realized oh my god I actually don't know what my hair looks like as it naturally grows out of my scalp how to take care of it what's coconut oil what's shea butter and I realized that that was true for so many other women like me with naturally curly hair that spent years trying to change themselves in order to be perceived as beautiful because we had been told this is what you need to look like and instead creating a toy that celebrates children just the way they are or celebrates their friends or just showing them how diverse we are and that that's beautiful too also from a health standpoint she shaved her head because of it was all the chemicals. I think the story was that just she was just tired of putting chemicals so close like on the skin right by her brain. Yeah, that's a thing that happens is, you know, we're using these chemicals to straighten our, our hair because we want to change it, you know, to look more professional or to meet such and such beauty standards. However, they're not great for your health. And you don't necessarily need to do that. If you want to, it should be because you choose to, but not because you're being pressured to. No, absolutely. Do you know Eric Banholz from Beardbrand? Yeah. So we talk about that and he makes a joke because I shave my head because I'm bald, but he says, we all know what's going on under that hat, Lucas. And for me, it was because I just didn't want to figure out like how to take care of my hair. And I've got, well, what's left, pretty straightforward. It's I never had to think about all these chemicals or how to do anything. So I can only imagine how hard it is to learn to just take care of your your body like that. It's very hard when you don't know anything, your mom doesn't know anything, and the knowledge has not been passed down from generation to generation. But thankfully, YouTube has revived that community, and it's been growing steadily, and so many women have been able to learn and embrace their natural hair now. And I didn't even think about where those communities might exist, but it's a great transition into how did you start your journey as a founder, finding those initial customers and those almost micro communities of, and I, so, some aren't so micro anymore, but how did you tap into finding your initial audience, your first initial thousand true fans? Honestly, I guess I'm an accidental founder. I didn't go to art school thinking like, I'm going to create a physical product and go viral and, you know, have all these thousands of children being impacted by this doll. I was like, I'm going to be the next Kara Walker. I'm going to work in children's media in some capacity. And so for me, it happened with just being authentic and telling my story and and finding something that I was really passionate about, which I think is really important. We often see people starting companies and solving problems that aren't necessarily problems or that are just things that they are personally dealing with that doesn't resonate with a larger audience. But I found something that I was uniquely passionate about, other people were passionate about. And it started with my campus, you know, being actively involved in the Black Lives Matter movement um, and looking to create social change through my institution and through the community around me. And then realizing that at my institution, in the direction that I was going with my work, I had the opportunity to do something more 
by going into children's media and having long-term impact because one thing that I often talked about was how artists and designers are uniquely positioned to influence culture because we create the content um, that people are consuming. Like the fact that so many of my peers go on to work at the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons, et cetera, and are working on these Netflix shows and are working on the, the latest kids shows and things that you're wearing, everything that you're consuming, we have the ability to touch it. So if we're not culturally competent, what are we producing? And so for me, that meant being able to reach children at an earlier stage through children's media and through content creation. And I started Healthy Roots Dolls as a class project where I turned Rapunzel into a little brown girl and sculpted her with clay, sewed these outfits and made this little wig to show little black girls that like with beautiful curly hair that were princesses too and so many peers saying wow this looks like a doll and then having that conversation on social media where people said yeah I never really had dolls that look like me or they were just painted brown or they didn't have my nose or my hair texture and seeing oh wow there's an opportunity here for me to create something let me see what I can do I love that and it's funny how many businesses start as one thing and then people just really like it for something else. So in your case, what started out as a class project turned into a full business. Yeah. And now I do it full time. I have a team. We have customers. We have big business problems, but it's great because we make it work. Oh, you know what um, is a big business problem I dream of one day? I heard the life is good. And their head of e-commerce talk about their email list is so big. It's like 10 million people that if they send out a limited edition or a flash sale, it takes so long to process that email list to send out the full 10 million emails. It's sold that, out before everyone gets it. Yeah. Like those are, that's, <laughs> that's my goal as a problem to have. I don't even want to know how much it costs for them to use Clavio at that point. Oh, they were, <laughs> well, they were on, um, it was at Dreamforce. It would have been Salesforce. And there are okay. other tools. Uh, Meropost is a good one for like huge send volume. But at that point, it's you're building custom email servers. Those aren't the problems that I want to have. I just want to be able to sell out faster than my email list can deliver. We'll talk about that more. It's interesting. <laughs> Do you want to dive into, into some of those fun stories? We could talk about it. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a, a story that uh, is maybe on the tip of your tongue if you wanted to to share. Well, my story is mainly, you know, at the time of this recording, we're past 2020, which was the first year of the pandemic, um, the COVID oh pandemic. We're now live from pandemic year two. This is going to be a part of history. It and it was a challenging year for production, like so manufacturing and supply chain for a lot of businesses. I don't know of any online business that I've shopped with that has a physical product that wasn't impacted in some way, whether it was shipping delays or like limited inventory. Like I was trying to buy makeup and I couldn't get any makeup. I was like, dang, we're not even going anywhere. Why is everyone else buying makeup? <laughs> <laughs> and so for my own business, we ran out of inventory way earlier than we expected not ran out we sold out i guess is a better way to say it and then didn't get back in stock until like the end of the year and now because there's just so much demand i'm like watching this inventory i worked so hard to get move which is great but i'm also like i just wanted this to last longer it just got here i just wanted to chill for a little bit yeah <laughs> can i get a second please <laughs> i thought ordering by the skid was gonna buy me some time it's been challenging, but that's what happens when you build something really great. So how do you 
handle some of those challenges? Because I know that you have gone out and raised capital. Is that something that you're looking to do more of? Hire some sort of consultant, but like nobody, there are no pandemic consultants. We're, we're all just figuring <laughs> this out. So how do you plan on trying to, to minimize those issues of, of inventory? Uh, so one thing that I've learned during my time of entrepreneurship and solving problems is that I have to hire people because <laughs> you can't do everything. And so really early on, a lot of people would tell me, figure out the things that you really love to do, figure out the things that you don't want to do, and then find the people to do those things. So I know where my skill sets lie. And so now my primary responsibility is to find people to do the other work so that I can focus in my strengths and make sure everything else is getting done because things it's getting bigger, which means there's more things to do and which means I can't do it myself. Oh, that's just so great to hear um, of your growth and success where something that you might have used to be able to do in an hour is now a full-time position. And it's a full-time position because I no longer have that hour because it has to go somewhere else. Whether you're hiring or scaling your business requires capital. And I know that you've you've talked about going out and raising capital and fundraising, and especially as a black woman, how I think the stat is 3% of venture capital money goes to women of color or, I don't know the exact number, but it's low. It's very low. I think it's less than 3%. It's, it's something not great. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's like 3% or 2% or 0.5%. It's far too low. Yeah. It's below the threshold of, of acceptable. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered that maybe when you're talking with other founders, you just have another layer of difficulty on that someone like myself doesn't even need to consider when, when pitching our product or our company? Well, I think that's a big issue that I can't necessarily speak to at scale just because it's there's a lot of variables. But I do know that overall with VC and startup, it's very much a network of who you know. And VCs often invest in people that are like them. Mm -hmm. So similar backgrounds, similar identities. And so I don't remember where, where the statistic is from, but I do believe the last time I looked at this, 75% of white people don't even know a black person in America. And by know a black person, I mean not a coworker, not somebody you're in the office with, somebody that like you could call them and go over to like a friend. Yeah, like, hey, I'm in the neighborhood. Are you around? Exactly. And that was a few years ago. So I'm not sure if that's changed very much, but that's what it was. And so if that's the truth, and like I've gone to school with people in my undergrad who said that they didn't, they've never met a black person before. And they live in like Washington. Like state out in the woods in a cabin <laughs> like Ted Kaczynski or. I'm not sure, but I can't blame them because it's not their fault, but it's also just the reality. And so if the networks are made up of people that look like you and that, you know, and, you know, come from the same credentials as you, you're less likely to invest out into people who can't even access you, who can't even find a way to get to you. Um, and so that's one of the big challenges. And then the other challenge is once you do get to those people, the expectations are different. So my father always told me, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And so I was pretty early stage and, you know, a lot of people just telling me, oh, we need to see more traction. Oh, we need to see this much revenue. Oh, we need to see X, Y, and Z. When I know very well that there are companies that get funding that don't have those things. And so for me, rather than, you know, getting angry or, you know, thinking about like, this is unfair and X, Y, and Z. I said, okay, this is the reality. This is how they like to operate. 
I'm going to stop talking to these people and look at my strategy and reassess who I'm talking to, what I'm bringing to the table and how I approach it so that the next time I do this, if they say no, I know it's not because of me. I know it's because of them. What a great attitude to have. Because I think that I would have just gone and been salty and said, oh, these idiots, they don't, they're looking a gift horse in the mouth. What, what a bunch of dumb, <laughs> I, I don't want to swear, but I, I could go off on, yes. on a little tangent. And that's something else that uh, I really wanted to ask because you're just so eloquent with, and you mentioned saying no. How do you say no and establish your boundaries with investors or partners without turning into an absolute asshole? So this was inspired by my more privileged peers in my undergrad. And I just realized that the reason why these people seemed happy and were prioritizing themselves is because they always put themselves first. And so I just got really selfish. I got selfish with my time. I got selfish with my energy. And I look at things and I say, if this doesn't make me happy, if this is not something I want to do, if it's not serving me in any type of way that I want it to, I'm not doing it. I'm not talking to you just because you want to talk to me. What's in it for me? Is this what I want? Does this fit my timeline? No. All right. Well, I'm not taking that conversation. I'm not going to this event. I'm not filling out this application. I'm not doing it. Why? And when you phrase it that way, and almost think of if somebody made you a dessert and it was just the most decadent dessert in the world, but you just, you really didn't want it. You could just simply say, no, thank you. And it wouldn't be a big deal or, or offensive. So why does it feel so awkward to say no to stuff that you just, you didn't really want anyway in the first place? I think people get scared of missing opportunities, but I don't have that fear anymore because I create my own opportunities. Like, I know what's important for me. And so when you have your own goals in mind, it doesn't matter if Oprah wants to put you on her favorite things list. If you don't have the inventory for it, you can't do it. And that's mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> You'll do something else. Funny story. I uh, Do you know the Bartesian, like the Keurig for drinks? No. I interviewed them for another podcast and they were on Oprah's favorite things list. And guess what happened to them? They they are oversold. <laughs> uh, oversold. But then also if you're working with retailers or you're going, selling to Amazon directly, all of a sudden you have to pay penalties if you're not, if you can't fulfill inventory and oh, just an absolute nightmare of a headache to sell the same amount of inventory you would have sold and probably make less money because now you're dealing with all these unhappy big retailers. Exactly. So it's like everything looks like an incredible opportunity from the outside because you've never had it before and you've been striving for it. But then once you get there, you realize there's all these technicalities, which is why you need to just focus on the things that you know you need that align with your goals and not allow yourself to be distracted. I feel like that's something I tell a lot of black founders, female founders, people with physical product goods. They're always like, I need to go out and raise money. And I'm like, if you have a physical product company, you should be able to sell your products and make money. And if you can't figure out how to sell your products and make money, if you need, I mean, there are other problems there, but you should be able to at least do that. Yeah. If you can't make a little bit of money selling a hundred of something, what do you think is going to change when you sell a hundred thousand of something? Yes. Yeah, so that was my approach was looking at the challenges that I was facing, seeing that, you know, these people are not interested. So I'm asking, so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm asking the wrong people. They don't think I have enough traction. All right, let me go get even more traction. And so that was my approach to it was not talking to people that didn't want to talk to me, not pursuing opportunities that weren't aligned for me, and then just doing as much work as possible, focusing on my business and building a really strong foundation so that it could be successful as possible. Good, smart advice that more people, including myself, should be uh, reminded of daily. I do my best.
The last thing that I wanted to to touch upon is just how do you think making your start in Detroit impacted your everything from your business philosophies to access to capital versus starting in a city like LA or London or New York or Austin where it's trendier to start a business? Well, I've actually started in a lot of different places. So I my company started in my undergrad at RISD in Rhode Island, and then I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. And then I did an accelerator program in Durham, North Carolina, and then I went to Detroit, and then I went back to Ohio, and then I came back to Detroit. So I've been doing a lot of work in a lot of different places. But I believe that Detroit has a really great ecosystem and community here, and there were just the right opportunities here that were willing to invest in me the same way I was willing to invest in the community. And so I think that's what the difference is, was just already having a network here, already having established relationships, really strong programs here, Quicken Loans Detroit Demo Day, the Backstage Capital Accelerator Program, and not being in a busy, bustling city where it's kind of hectic and chaotic, (laughs) but still fun. You know, I love the New Yorks and I love the Cali cities, but there's something about Detroit and, you know, like the Chicago's and things like that. It gives you time to to focus without forcing you to say no to parties and meetings that you just you didn't really want anyway i have no problem saying no to parties and meetings but (laughs) not not everyone does you know for the if it's your first time being invited to something you think it's pretty cool and it's like we said earlier just ends up being a big massive time suck that you didn't want to do anyway that was the difference for me you mentioned the detroit ecosystem i'd love to learn a little bit more or hear a little bit more about that because I, I think I said this in the email. I'm listening to a podcast about Ford and just some of the history of the rich, like just Detroit has such a rich history of, of entrepreneurship. I'd just love to hear a little bit more about the, uh, the Detroit ecosystem. Yeah. So I'm not a native, but I've lived here for a little more than a year. It's probably the besides Ohio and like New York city, long as I've lived in one place for the same amount of time. And I was connected to people through the backstage capital Detroit accelerator program here, the bamboo Detroit, the tech town Detroit, the WeWork community here, the uh, Quicken loans community with their Detroit demo day. And just the, the creatives on the ground doing the work and creating the culture here in Detroit. Those were really the people that, propelled me forward and created community for me. So there's always events. I'm really into the design core here where there's creatives and they're holding holding events as well. Like I said, when we used to go outside, but that's mainly been my community. What are you take away of just finding that community wherever you are, whether it's Detroit or Cincinnati or Toronto? Yeah. Like I think when I was in Cincinnati, I participated in the AIGA Whenever I was moving, because I've moved so many times, I would just Google communities and then like find people. Like when I moved to Detroit, I just looked for people who were like doing cool stuff and then followed them on Twitter and followed them on Instagram and messaged them and like was letting them know I was moving to the city and like would love to hang out or go to any events that they were hosting. That's the other thing that you can do as an entrepreneur is like putting yourself out there and being open to meeting people. Yeah. Time and time again, you just hear that the most successful people early on in their career work really hard during the day and then they're either going to breakfasts, dinners every night, every event that they can go to. And now I guess it's more like clubhouse room that you can just jump on. They're always present and just trying to to build up their network when you're you're just starting. 
and investing in the relationships that you have that's another thing that i've been focused on for 2021 so like the mentors and the advisors and just the friends in the ecosystem because those are the people that i can talk shop with i can you know have regular conversations with plan trips with just people to keep you balanced and sane because things can get crazy it gets crazy fast and sometimes you just need someone to talk to to get you through till when it's less crazy yeah well, Yelitsa, we touched on so much. Obviously, you've got so much going on, so I don't want to keep you here for too, too long. What else do you have going on? Where can people find you? Is there anything that you'd like to promote as well? If I had to promote anything, it would be like my typical catchphrases for, you know, advice for young entrepreneurs, which is don't say no before you can say yes. That's how I ultimately started Healthy Results. I got an email. I saw an opportunity, didn't think I was a fit, had a conversation with the program manager anyways, applied and got the grant and the rest was history. So it's all about doing the work. I think that's the other thing because people will talk to me. I'll, you know, people will reach out and want to talk to me for 30 minutes and they're just asking me like what should i do da, 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 or i'm trying to figure this out da, da, da. i'm just like you should do it you should launch it you should send the email you should do this and it's because people are just they're spinning their wheels like yeah i've been thinking about i was like you need to stop thinking about it you need to do it that's the only thing stopping people is doing the thing that they're thinking about taking 30 minutes to ask someone whether or not you should do something that you know you need to do doesn't make any sense but asking them how they would approach it or like showing them the work and getting their feedback much more valuable. Absolutely. Yalitza, thank you so, so much for, for joining me on Rolled Up. People can find you on Twitter at the Yalitza, uh, obviously healthyrootstalls.com. Show Yalitza a little bit of love. Buy a doll for someone that you know. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. And that is a wrap. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Business is always changing. One thing that I just find fascinating is that Little Caesars Pizza, originally from Detroit, was never intended to have delivery. That's why their prices are so low. You would pick it up on your way home from work in a city built on the automobile everyone drives. But now you can order Little Caesars Pizza on your favorite delivery app. Audio is changing too with apps like Clubhouse where Elites and I first met and podcasts are growing faster than ever before. If you're on Clubhouse, check me out at LW and make sure you follow Yelitsa there as well. She's far more active than I am. Next week, we wrap up Rolled Up Season 1 as I talk to the founder and CEO of Italic, Jeremy Kai. While Italic absolutely fulfills their brand promise, quality at cost, their business model has so many layers to it. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you're hearing this episode, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, even Amazon Prime, Audible, whatever they're calling their podcast tool. Make sure you're subscribed. Now, a little inside baseball. Before I started Rolled Up, I set a pretty lofty goal for myself. Could I get 100 reviews by the end of the season? I didn't think I'd come anywhere close to it, but around the world, I'm sitting at 70 reviews. So if you haven't left a review on Apple yet, please take the time to do so. And if you really want to help me out, the next time you see your mother-in-law, take her phone and leave a review on hers too. Hope you enjoyed this episode. That bell means it's quitting time. I've got one rolled up and I hope you do too.